welcome to the Spirit Guide Society podcast. My name is Stephanie and I'm your co-curator. Tonight in the Whiskey Society at Seven Grand in downtown Los Angeles, we have the one and only, the legendary Sherry Moore from Uncle Nearest in the house. Sherry, what did we taste through tonight? We tasted our 1884, our 1856, and our single barrel 1820. That 1820 was no joke, and I'm sorry guys, you probably won't be able to have it, but you can check out our tasting notes on the podcast. Make sure to subscribe, like us on YouTube, and tell your friends about the podcast. And always remember to enjoy responsibly. That means don't get too drunk and forget to give credit where it's needed. Cheers, Jerry. So we were talking about what your official title was, right? But I think you prefer to go uh, CWO, right? I like that. Yeah, what is it? Chief Whiskey Officer. Officer. (laughs) Somebody gave that to me last week, and I like it. Well, I think it's very appropriate. So there are some newcomers here. Um, So the Whiskey Society is a place for you to learn how to drink intelligently. We invite master distillers, brand ambassadors, and people who are just whiskey enthusiasts to come in here and educate you on the spirits that you love. So tonight we have Uncle Miris in the house from Tennessee. So I want to just go ahead and dive right in. Sherry, can you give us a little bit of a background about yourself and your kind of journey in the whiskey industry and how you came to be at Uncle Nearest? Okay. And first of all, has anybody read the book uh, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell? I'm an outlier. Right now, it's real cool to be a woman in distilled spirits. Hmm. Well, when I started in 75, it was not cool. <laughs> it was not cool in the industry. And then you take, I am in Lynchburg, Tennessee. Can you imagine how male-oriented that was? Oh, yeah. But because they knew me and they knew my family, people shared with me. They didn't look at me as somebody that's trying to be a trailblazer. It was just Sherry. So they shared with me. So I, I came in at a good time. So that's kind of how I got in the industry. I ended up uh, staying at Jack over 31 years. I ended up with uh, charcoal melon, sawmill, distillery, uh, boilers, getting rid of the slop. We'll talk about that. <laughs> and uh, charcoal melon and all the warehousing. And then I had quality control and uh, environmental. So it kind of got me into every department. And I just say that because it helps us as we're starting Uncle Nearest that I've had that broad of experience. Exactly. Absolutely. Do I know everything? No. <laughs> but what I do know is what I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and it takes a lot to know what you don't know. And it's just like, I, you know, with warehousing, I always said, I don't know roofs, but you sit me down with three roofers and I'll tell you which one knows roofs. I'll know which ones to do roofs. So that's where I think the other one is, is what I don't know. I understand that, but I can find that expert. So that's kind of my background. So I had retired, and I was selling real estate. Uh, how many of y'all know the story of Uncle Nearest? Do you? <laughs> I'm glad y'all do. Y'all do know. Yeah, I've been to the distillery at Jack Daniels. I did the enrichment trip with uh, with uh, the United States Bartenders. School, okay. And we were out in uh, we were out in Tennessee for about five days. We went to the Stevenson Cooperage. We saw the whole aspect of production there. It was amazing. So. And that was one other thing. That's a good point. And that's one other exposure that again it ties in with Uncle Nearest is Brown Foreman is one of the only uh, distilleries um, companies that own their own cooperage. Mm-hmm. So we were able to experiment on toasting, 
char levels because we own the cooperage. So we did a lot of experiments with that. Well, let me go switch over to Uncle Nearest. <laughs> I feel like these guys tell the story better than me. No. <laughs> no. I'll try to do it real fast. I'm not. I'm a production nerd, but I'll try. Jack, his mother died when he was a baby, and he did not like her, and she did not like him. So at age six, he decided he wasn't going to live there anymore. So he went to his uncle, Felix Wagner. And one day there was a man there, and his name was Dan Call. And he said, who's that little boy? And he said, well, that's my nephew. He's staying here. He doesn't want to live with his parents or his father. And he said, well, I could use him as a chore boy. I could use him on my farm. I've got a farm. I've got a general store, and I've got a distillery. We could use him. So that is how Jack Daniels got on the Dan Call farm. Well, who else was on the Dan Call farm at that time? was Uncle Nearest, Nearest Green. And he was the master distiller for Dan Call's distillery. And so as a, as a young boy, Jack had a lot of interest when he would see the steam up there at the distillery and asking questions. So that's where he went from supposed to be helping at the general store to helping at the distillery. And you take where he left his father, I mean, you know, he's left his family, uh, I think Uncle Nearest didn't just become somebody he learned about making whiskey, but he was almost a father figure to him. Because he was probably 35, you know, the records are kind of sketchy, but Uncle Nearest was probably 35 to 40 when Jack came there as a young boy. And I feel like I'm slaughtering this story. <laughs> so so uh, he came there, and then Dan Call was also a preacher on top of everything else. And he had one of those times in his life to where he had to figure out which spirit was he going to serve. The church, the Lutheran church, or making distilled spirits. And he chose to go with the church. Well, and sometimes so, the church is a pretty good front for the whiskey, though. It is a pretty good front. <laughs> so that is how Jack Daniels ended up taking over the Dan Call distillery. He was already working with Uncle Nearest, and then when Dan Call wanted to sell the distillery, then he worked that out with Jack. So that is how Jack and Uncle Nearest got together. So when Jack took over the distillery, who do you think he brought with him? Yeah, Uncle Nearest. And so that's where the two stories come together. So Fawn, who is the founder of Uncle Nearest, she's the one who reached out to you, correct? Well, and my cousin is, of course, Lynn Motlow's granddaughter, and Leechburg is a small town, it is. 400 people. Especially when you go to Miss Mary Bobo's, they'll tell you everything yeah. about everyone in That's town. That's my great-grandmother. Yeah, so we're talking about, like, <laughs> real hardcore <laughs> Tennessee blood, blood inside of Sherry right now. It's yeah. just like, you yeah. can't get more Tennessee than that. Miss Mary Bobo's. Even though I don't yeah. talk that way. I sound like I'm from Boston. But <laughs> <laughs> it's a small, it's a, it's, a, it's a little creepy over there. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I was walking through there and I didn't know if I was like walking through, through a potential like horror movie set. But it was, everyone was so nice and everyone was really kind. And going to Miss Mary Bobo's was an incredible experience yeah. just actually sitting down and having her you know host us and you know it was it was an incredible incredible experience to go over there so tell me about how fawn kind of how well how she got read the story there was an article in new york times that came out in june of 2016 
she read the story and then her big thing is she read that and she goes if this is about a relationship in the south during this time between mm -hmm. an african-american and a white and it is the unity and the love that i see i want to revive to, that. to revive that i want to write a book about it so she talked her husband into coming to his first trip to tennessee to Lynchburg, Tennessee. <laughs> and so it was her 40th birthday, so they come to there. And my cousin, who was a Motlow, she heard there were people in town researching. So she heads over to where they're, they're doing the research. And so she introduces herself to them, and uh, she was leaving town, and she said, I want you to meet my cousin. She's a real estate agent, and the Dan Call Farm is for sale. And she can take you and let you see that property yourself. And then she calls me and she goes, I want you to show him the property. And she said, I looked into Fawn's eyes and I saw goodness. And she said, I think I want you to just help them and make sure that they meet the relatives of Nears Green. So that's how I met them. So I showed them the property and they ended up buying it. And uh, so it's almost kind of funny because there's is no that, way I could have orchestrated meeting them. Is that where the distillery is now? No. The property? Okay. No. So where is the distillery? It is between Nashville and Lynchburg. It's almost halfway between Nashville and Jack Daniels. Okay. And so ended up, and that is part of honoring Jack Daniels. They didn't want to put a distillery in their backyard. Absolutely. Yeah. Because this story is about honor. It's about the honor that... Jack showed to Nearest Green and his family. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot we of people, want to carry on that yeah. same honor. A lot of people didn't know that Jack Daniels learned distillation from an African-American, you know. So so what I'm hearing is that when Fawn kind of found out about that history, she just really wanted to revive it, and that's how that story came to be. Yes. All right, so let's get into the distillery aspect now. So we know that the distillery is in between Nashville and Lynchburg. When was it established? When did you guys start production? How rocky was that kind of getting, how, how difficult was that? Did you guys have, did she have a, because I feel like you had a lot of probably the answers. She was a consultant. What was the whole kind of deal there? Well, well, when she decided she was going to write a book and then she asked the family, how can we honor Nearest Green? And they said, we would love to see his name on a bottle. So that's how the brand, it started from writing a book to okay. doing the distillery. Awesome. And so that's how it started. And, of course, we've got really three things going on right now. One is, uh, and if you know Fawn Weaver, which this group does, she is not going to wait 10 years to get this story out. <laughs> the story was too good to wait 10 years because if you're starting a distillery, by the time you design the distillery, get it built, the whiskey ages, it could be six to ten years. It takes a long time. Getting into the whiskey industry is probably the stupidest mistake you can make in your life. Right. <laughs> so we, we've got three things going on and started with purchase barrels. Okay. So these are barrels. Now the one thing that we do is we filter ours a little different, and I can get into that later. But we've got the filtered, uh, we've got the purchase barrels. We also have a distillery that we got our recipe and they are producing. We've got some whiskey already a year and a half old. And then we're also in the phase of designing our own distillery. Okay. And that is what makes me happy. All right. So what is this first mark that Maria passed around here? This is the 1884. All right. So let's go ahead and stick our nose in this glass. Breathe in gently through your mouth and throw out some food words. What are you guys getting on this whiskey here? This is 93 proof. 
probably seven, eight years old. A lot of vanilla. Simon, what are you getting? Custard. Yeah, I'm getting like. Yeah, I'm getting like cake batter for sure. Ooh, the oakiness on that is very surprising. It's um, the texture on it is not what I expected it to be. You know, when I think about oak, it's like it's very lingering, and it's just like I feel like the, it's all at the tip of the tongue, mm -hmm. you know. And then it makes a really yeah. slow creep back here. <laughs> so, what's the mash bill on this whiskey? What kind of what kind of what are we? What are this the mash bill is going to be eighty four eight eight. So eighty four corn, eight rye, and eight barley. Again, it, it's uh, seven to eight years old. The one thing about the 1884, I've got to grab the bottle because I think it looks so good. <laughs> there you, you've got it. I just, I really like how it looks. But the one thing you're going to see here on the back is this is going to be Victoria Butler Eady. And she is Nearest Green's great, great granddaughter. So each batch of 1884 is going to be picked out, designed by one of the Green family members. And she was the first one. Then the next, and if we go on, we'll be bringing in other Green members, and we'll end up with a more of a committee of it, you might say, or team yeah, picking out that. Yeah, I reading an article that you guys appointed the first uh, African-American female master blender in history, right? Out and of distillery. this is Victoria. Yeah, amazing. She's, she's good. And, I mean, she's good herself. But it is in her blood. She's got the palate. It, it got passed down. We've got good reviews on these. Yeah, this is delicious stuff. Breakfast bourbon. <laughs> 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 Who's helping you uh, make the juice that you guys currently have now? Like, how far are you guys into? You said you have a little bit of juice that's aging yes, already? Yes, it's a okay. year and a half old. And then we're also designing our distillery, and we're going with a 24-inch column steel. Okay. We're going to go with a column steel versus a pot steel. I think there's most more consistency there. Uh, a 24-inch will be producing about 25 barrels a day on okay. one shift. We'll be able to go on up to three shifts a day. We want to get the one shift operating and people trained and then go to the second and third. So that's about 6,000, between 6,000, 7,000 barrels a year on one shift. That's a small production, a, yeah. It's a pretty good size production for a new company. Yeah, absolutely. That launched in July 17. So if I wanted to get this bottle for my home bar, this Uncle Nearest 1884, how much would that go for approximately? About 45 About $45. Fantastic. This is just delicious, yeah. So what's the second one that you're passing out over here, Maria? This is the uh, 100 proof. 100 proof? Yeah. All right, so it's going to be the same mash bill. What's, yes. the, what's the strength on this 84 you said This again? is 93. 93 proof, okay. 93 and six, uh, seven to eight years old, and then this could be nine up to maybe even 14, but probably nine to 11. So you're using the Stevenson Cooperage as well for this, or do you, are you working with no, someone else? No, okay. no, no. And I'm... Uh, on our cooperage, we'll probably, on our first, when we start producing our own, uh, on what we've got laying down that we produced, mm -hmm. it is from Independent State. Okay. Now, when we start producing, I, I feel like we will be kind of in the research and development mode. 
we'll probably be testing some barrels that have had, make sure that the staves have seasoned for 24 months. That wood is seasoned for 24 months. We'll probably be doing some just some regular bourbon barrels. And uh, we'll probably try some different cooperages okay. to see what we're going to get. So there, so we can expect Uncle Nearest to have a sort of an evolution across yes. the years, yes. right? Yes. So you're very, I'm sure you're, you, do you, are you the person kind of testing the quality control on this? I yes. So tell me about, tell me about that. How, what's your methodology? How do you go about, uh, of course, she, she's curating. What I'm, I'm doing more is on the filtration. The one thing that we do, and we do this on our 1884, and we do it on our 19, um, in our 1856. And that is we do one thing that a lot of people don't know to do, but once that barrel's dumped, which is our word, we should say empty, but we say dump a barrel. When we dump that whiskey, it's probably going to be about 108, 107 proof. So we reduce that down to 101 or 94, just a proof above what we're going to bottle it. And we make sure that that whiskey stays with that water for anywhere from 24 to 48 hours. We add activated carbon. And we take this activated carbon, and it is made. Activated carbon is either from coal, wood, or coconut shells, mainly. And we do from the coconut shells. And it's ground very fine, so there's a lot of surface area. So we give 24 to 48 hours with that water and that carbon. Interesting. I've never heard of that. So that's that's your version of your filtration system. And then we go through then, and we filter through diatomaceous earth. And that diatomaceous earth, it just smooths it. It just takes out some of the uh, heavy oils that you don't want and some of the... Uh, sharper flavors that you don't want. Are you using uh, hard water or are they using limestone water? We, uh, on reduce and prove, we go through uh, reverse osmosis. Reverse osmosis. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's go ahead and stick our nose in this glass, breathing gently through your mouth. What are you guys getting on this uh, Uncle Nearest? You said the year on this was, what was the, they're all different years, right? Yeah, so, but it, it's going to be... Uh, Nine to uh, eleven. Nine to eleven. Nine, maybe up to fourteen. This one's a lot more subtle. Yeah. But it's a hundred proof. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that. Lilacs and rose water. Lilacs and rose water. Beautiful. Yeah. I like the bowls up here. No, please. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, what are you getting on this one? Red candy, red licorice. What are you ladies getting over there on this whiskey? <laughs> so much. <laughs> yeah, this is it's um, beautiful. It's it's very. I love when this happens, when you get something that's higher proof and you're expecting it to have this, what I like to call a bourbon bloom, kind of yes. like a blooming onion, and that happens all, all over your tongue and in your chest and in your stomach. <laughs> this is not happening here. This is, I thought the 84 was breakfast whiskey, but if I really want a cake in the morning, I have a long day ahead of me. This is exactly what I want to start off with. This is incredibly smooth. Wow. So what are the the year uh, the years that you have on here? What are their significances between the eighty four and the eighteen fifty six? Do those particular years have a significance to you? I keep wanting to point to them. <laughs> uh, the eighteen eighty four is the year that we think is the last year that Uncle Nearest was the master distiller. 
1856 is the first recording of him being the master distiller for Dan Call. And then when we get to 1820, that's the year we think he was born. And the reason we say we think in some of these, especially like on the 1820, is there just weren't a lot of records on enslaved people in 1820. They were considered property. So you're not going to find a birth certificate. But from the records she's researched... This is beautiful stuff. What's the char? What's the char level that you guys are using on these barrels? Uh, that one, I think, is a four, three, four, four, four and the that. first one, four as well. Uh huh. Beautiful. If I wanted to get this, bottle, and the only yeah. reason I kind of hesitate because I am not used to char levels. I'm more used to a proprietary toast and char level mm-hmm. rather than just the standard. But yeah. where we're getting these from, it's a four. Yeah. So you're not toasting the barrels before? It's just just a straight char on them? Were you guys doing a little bit of that toast kind of extraction before you guys light them up? Uh, when we start doing it, we'll be doing a kind of a specialized char and toast. Okay, beautiful. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So if I wanted to get a bottle of this 1856 Uncle Nearest for my home bar, how much would that run me at my local liquor store? Uh, yeah, wow. If, depending on where you go, anywhere in between 50 and 60. This is... <laughs> you can walk into some of those liquor stores and definitely take advantage of the counter person that doesn't know what they're doing. If you don't see Uncle Nearest at your local liquor store, ask them to order it. Honestly, yes. they lose nothing on ordering that bottle. If you ask them to order it and you don't buy it, they'll sell it to somebody else. So you can go to your local mom and pop shop and they have no problem ordering that whiskey for you. This is, would make an incredible Christmas gift. This is just gorgeous whiskey. I can't imagine any bourbon lover not liking this. It's just so... Crushable. <laughs> I'm, again, I'm speaking and think that, but I think it holds up well in a cocktail. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to put some bitters and sugar and make this into an old fashioned. Absolutely. You said this one was between like nine and eleven yes, years, yes, right? But we don't have an age statement on a bottle. Is that something that you maybe, I mean, you guys have a long, long road ahead. Right. This is kind of still mm-hmm. right at the beginning of your of mm-hmm. your journey with Uncle Nearest. So you guys, I mean. You but guys, as we build our warehouses and then we test this, we, you know, I mean, it, it sounds like a cliche, but this whole thing about maturation, mm-hmm. it is really not as much about age as when is that taste right? Absolutely. When is that color? When is that taste right? Mm-hmm. And the reason I say color is the color and taste go so hand in hand. And we will be, t- we, during the aging process, we'll be testing it and we'll be tracking that color, we'll be tracking that proof and seeing what it does to determine what uh, age we'll be dumping ours at. So what's this third mark that Maria's coming around mm-hmm. with right now? 18, 20. 11 years. Year. Oh, so this one does have an age statement on it. Yes. Oh, okay. So what's the difference between uh, this uh, 1820 and the three these, the other two that we've had before? These are, are going to be blended batches. Blended. This okay. is a smaller batch, but these are blended batches, and these are a single barrel. Oh, wow. No water added. Beautiful. So this is at cast strength. It's at cast strength. Beautiful. Excited. So. <laughs> And it's going to be the same mash bill on this? You were saying yes. 84, yes. what was it again? 8488. 8488. So all the same mash bill. Mm-hmm. So it's amazing what you can do with the same mash bill. <laughs> it is amazing. You know, I think that's one thing that people uh, don't realize, that only about 40 to 50% of the taste comes from the distillation. Yeah. And it is from 
the time in the barrels, and then this filtration process that you do. So are you guys using like a proprietary yeast strain for this? I know. Is, oh, you, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about the fermentation process on this how, or how, and how you hope to change it. Because I know, like I said, right now you guys do have a beautiful right. base product, but right. you guys have a lot of room to grow. Yes. So where are you right now, and where would you hope for uh, this to kind of grow into? We, we plan we'll have our own yeast strain. Okay. And then I'm seeing probably 72 hours on the fermentation. We'll probably be doing five or six days a week. So some of them may be uh, 96. Okay. But 72 hours we should be able to get. The desired food. alcohol content. Yes, yes. I think there's a sweet spot there. We should be able to get that. Uh, I think if you rush it a little too much, you lose on the flavor. Absolutely. So we are, we are designing our system around 72 hours. We can go longer, but we are not designing it to be any less than that. Great. So let's go ahead and stick our nose in this glass and breathe in gently through your mouth. So let's have some food words. What are you guys getting on this Uncle Nearest 1820 cast strength 11 year? Getting a little like white pepper. Cherry, you said? Cherry. Marshmallow. Banana. I thought you said ham at first, and I'm like, I need dinner. <laughs> Andrew, what are you getting on this one? Joy and happiness. Joy and happiness. <laughs> That's what I got. <laughs> so go ahead and tap some over your tongue and see how that experience changes for you. That is delicious. Yeah. I'm getting like a lot of like stone fruits, like blackberry, cherry, red apples, any kind of red fruit, purple fruit. It's just like, that's it. It's like a cobbler of red fruit. It's so good. I think the fun thing about single barrel is no matter you're starting with the same mash bill, mm -hmm. the next one you get, you're going to get all these different flavors. And it's all because of the place in the warehouse. It's about how long that bear, the staves, the wood, making the staves have aged, where it was. And so that's what's fun about oh, yeah. single barrel. The, the rack house romance is real. You know, you it can, is. You can lay two barrels down at the exact same time, but you have one on the lower level and one on the upper level. And when you pull those two barrels at the end of six, seven years, they're going to taste wildly different. The thing about most of the whiskeys that you've had are they're going to be blended into a consistent product with the addition of water to make it consistent. If you buy a shot of Jack Daniels in America, it's going to taste the exact same way as if you bought a shot of Jack Daniels at, in Japan, you know? So the beauty of the single barrels is that they have these nuances. They're unicorn barrels in of themselves. So mm -hmm. they're just gorgeous. So it's always a treat when we get to have single yeah. barrels come in as well. This is beautiful stuff. Is this something that's available for purchase as well? Because I know we were talking about... Is this a unicorn? <laughs> it's a little tease. So right now, really, the only place you would probably find it in the U.S. is at our distillery. Okay. So you guys are very lucky to be trying this juice tonight, in yes. short. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> slowly. Savor it. Yeah. You know, there's really, I don't know if I've had any bad whiskey. Yeah. I've just had some that's better than others. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, what a barrel does to whiskey is amazing. <laughs> And uh, but no, this is this is a fun product. So y'all have to come to Chevyville, come see me. Yeah. So is the distillery fully functioning now? Or are you guys? No, no, we're in the design phase. Okay, so we're still in the design phase. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and just nerdy stuff. But we've got Please. to get all this air <laughs> permitting and all the things. We've got to be able to get handle our wastewater and designing our wastewater system. We'll probably go into a lagoon. Because we're, we're out of uh, town. We've got 270 acres. It's a horse farm. 
beautiful horse farm that had kind of gone down, and it's fixing to go way up. <laughs> Coming in and rehabbing it, and uh, the way is it, the, the horse barns are on the front, and we're keeping those. There's still going to be horses there. We're converting one of the buildings into our visitor center. We're converting one horse barn into our single barrel storage. Then we're building our distillery and our rig houses behind that. So for the people that have always come through that road and seen the horse barn, they're still going to have that familiarity. Absolutely. And so what's uh, the projected kind of timeline on the completion of this distillery? On the distillery, we could be uh, 18 months to two years out. And okay. a lot depends not on as much design, but on uh, state approvals. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, the laws. Just get it yes. in the way of making good whiskey. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And, and and one of the things is the angel share. Yeah. You know, it's getting the permitting. And, of course, y'all are very familiar with that. But one of the things that we will be doing is when we're putting on our own barrels is as we're going to, on every day, I'll be able to tell you how many worm holes we had in the barrels, mm-hmm. how many leaks we had in the chime, yeah. how many crows leaked we had. Because it ends up being very useful information because it's an overall uh, indicator of the quality of the barrels. So, for this angel share, the better quality wood they use, then the better the craftsmanship is, the less leaks we have, and then we don't lose as much. So, and and then that feedback will be given to our cooperage. So some of it on our cooperage is, is who's gonna make us a good barrel? Because I'm gonna be giving them, no, you had this many wormholes today. You gave me that many crow's leg. You're not making your barrels good. And a lot of people are just so glad to get barrels, they don't look at that. Yeah. But that's one thing is we will be tracking all that. That's one, even though we're going to be a small kind of crafty distillery in some ways, we're going to be tracking data on our whiskey. We're going to be tracking data as it ages. We're going to be tracking data on our barrels to where we're going to know what is the best location in the warehouse if we want to do single barrel. Yeah. What's the best location if we want to do the 1884? What's the best location for Victoria to pick out the best? And so we will be tracking all this data, and I can't wait. <laughs> so you're officially out of retirement. You're not in real estate anymore. No. Following the suit of a lot of master distillers in Kentucky, they never really retire. No. <laughs> you know, one of the funny things is I, when they asked me to come back, I said, well, you know, I've just got to make sure I can help y'all. I said, I've been out of the business, you know, for almost 10 years. You know, I've got to make sure I can really be a value. And when I came back, what I found is I called Vendome that makes the distill. They're fourth generation. They're all still there. I call music construction that builds warehouses. Guess what? They're all still there. Mm-hmm. They're fourth generation. So all those connections were there, and there's a lot of things that have changed in the business as far as all the extensions. But as far as the basics of whiskey making, that does not change. The relationships and the people that know that we need to help us, all that's the same. So yeah, I feel I felt good once I got in there. I thought everybody I know is still here. <laughs> Fall right back at home. Yes. Does anybody have any other questions for Sherry? You guys mentioned uh, the the char, like the level of the char, mm-hmm. the grade of the char. How do you determine the difference between those? Uh, by centimeters into the wood. Yeah. Okay. And how do you measure that? 
most people do it by visual. When you get into a four, it just really looks like alligator skin. So they can almost just do it visual. But and also depending on how long you have that flame going on for. So it's like if you have that flame in the barrel going on for uh, anywhere in between like three to seven seconds, three to ten, ten to twelve, one minute, you know. So you can track it that way as well. By and time. The, and the, they they that's how they produce it is by time. And then they're going to do a visual to make sure that that flame is doing what it's supposed to. Yeah, they can and completely that, dismember those those barrels and look at the individual save and see how far it goes in as well. And there's, you know, there's a bunch of different ways you can extract flavor from your barrels as well. So something that Woodford does is they toast their barrels before they light them on fire. So wood is an organic piece of matter. When, it's apply, when you apply heat to wood, its natural defense mechanism is going to start putting, pushing out all of its sap, all of its tannins, and all of its oils to the surface. So if you want to kind of get all those oils and such to the surface, you just apply a light heat to it. Not necessarily a fire. You can do it with like a very hot metal rod. Essentially, you can kind of put that barrel kind of belly into that rod and just lightly toast it so you can get all of those flavors and oils to the surface. And then you can light the shit out of it. So that kind of locks it in too. So there's different methods of what you can do. If you do a good toast, you want to do a lighter char. Yes. Because if you do a heavy char after you've done a good toast, you may have burned away mm -hmm. what you just did. But a toast, and, and she described it well, but it is, you know, you can have a piece of sourdough bread is good. Mm -hmm. What happens when you toast it? Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing. It is the very same thing. It just brings out those flavors. Exactly. And I'll tell you how we kind of got into testing that is uh, with Woodford and Jack is when we, we Brown Foreman had bought uh, some cooperages, I mean some uh, wineries, and we decided to make barrels for them. And we got looking at what the wineries do and what they do on the toasting of barrels. And it's like, oh, we need to, we need to test this. Mm -hmm. Some of the things, and this is the nerdy stuff, some of the things that we, uh, I've been part of is on this angel share, we actually took barrels and we put shrink wrap around them. <laughs> we wrapped them in plastic to see what it would do. Thank goodness it was awful because I hated to have managed that. I'm just like feeling the smell right yeah, we now. We only did like 200 barrels, but it was to see what is it going to do to the flavor and can we reduce that? If you could reduce angel share by 5%, that's, that's a lot of whiskey. Yeah. The other one we did was we sprayed them with uh, the same wax you put on apples. Mm. <laughs> well, I don't know if I've ever seen barrels row, but they've got this long, you've got a rail down a long haul of a warehouse. Those things were so slick <laughs> that normally you would like kick them and roll them and they go like 20 feet. I mean, it would go like 12 inches and it would run into other barrels. I mean, I thought we were going to kill somebody that day. I was glad that that one failed. But I was always glad those experiments failed, you know, but it's worth testing. It's worth testing because it is hard to know what you put in a barrel. I mean, when you jump it out, you have lost 30% or you've lost 40% of that whiskey. One other thing about the barrels that I was, and, and again, I think y'all are all educated on it, but I heard it described this way, and I loved it, is that the barrels really do three things. And one, it adds flavor, your caramels and stuff, but it takes out flavors. Your grain flavors go away. And then we're going to do Rick-style warehouses, and when you've got it laying on its belly, 
especially as that angel share and you've got that surface area with that belly land, that barrel laying on its belly, you've got all that oxid oxidation going on there. And so there's just a lot that happens in that. Girl, that's other echoes. It is. <laughs> I love a barrel warehouse. I love. It's a happy place. It yeah. is so good. <laughs> My first thing, I had some money left over one time. This was probably in the 80s. I had some money left over, major maintenance, and we had some discretion. And I, I went to my boss and I go, can I get humidity recorders and temperature probes? <laughs> that is the cutest thing I've seen ever. He goes, why? I go, I just want to know. But you know, I just wanted to have that data showing me between the first floor and the top floor. Even though I knew, I felt it on my skin, I wanted to have that data. Yeah. Oh, I was I was also treasurer of the American Filtration Society. Oh, I and, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know how many people are even in that society? Very few. Because who wants to talk about diatomaceous earth and carbon and filter paper? None. But there are a few people. We didn't talk about we didn't talk about what you wanted to talk about the slurp or sludge. What were you saying? Earlier? Oh, the slop. The slop. Yes. Okay. Before we forget. Yes. Okay. <laughs> when you, <laughs> you you grind, your, you know your your grains come in, and they're we're like with us, we're going to put in a hammer mill versus a roller mill. You know, hammer mill, we grind that, and it gives you more surface area for the starch to be released. You put it with the water, you cook it in your uh, mash cooker, you're going to ferment that, and it's going to go through the steel. And one of the things I want to do on our steel, and uh, the weavers approved it, is I think we're going to put a glass window with water so that we can clean that glass off, so that when people are on tour, they can actually look in there. They can see that beer coming down, that mash, the beer coming down, and you can see that beer tray. Because what you have is you've got steam coming up and your beer going down, and that's where your alcohol comes off. So you're going to have about 10% maybe on your alcohol. Then you've got all this that you've got to get rid of. So we're going to do sour mash. We're going to do setback. We're going to take that, and the reason you do it is you... It's just a good environment, so when you put your uh, yeast in, it already feels at home. Yeah. It's the right pH. You don't have as much. But you still are going to have about 75% of spent stillage. Country folks call it slop that you've got to get rid of. And we'll be selling that to farmers. We're going to have some cattle on the farm there. Um, makes great feed. Yeah. It's got a little bit of alcohol in it. The cows are happy. Happy, 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 happy cows. cows. <laughs> when you first start feeding the cattle, they end up getting a tolerance for it. But that first time, they are very wobbly, <laughs> and they, they, they end up. Yeah, but they are happy cows. They are very Why happy hasn't cows. Someone made a whiskey brand called the Drunken Cow. Or I know. <laughs> That's pretty Maybe good. One of the expression should be the Drunken Cow. I like that. <laughs> one well, other look on the podcast. I got a copyright that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one other little thing is slop turns the fat. It, it, it puts the fat on the cattle well. Uh, one of my other majors was ag for one semester. Don't ask me why, but it ended up being handy. Um, 
but it turns the fat uh, yellow. So when you feed cattle the slop, you have to take them off the slop for the last six weeks and put them on another feed in that uh, fat will turn back white. But if you take the cattle with the yellow fat, it's going to end up not grading out as good. Mm. Interesting. So, yeah. You think? Got a question over here? You're talking about toasting barrels and bringing like, the butchers and the, the residents are into the surface. Uh, can you talk about barrel entry proof? Entry proof. Yes. <clears throat> we are going to go in at 110, and that's probably the traditional proof that went in the barrels in older years. Uh, we're going in, the to be bourbon or Tennessee whiskey, the most you can put in is at 125. We're going to 110. And uh, and now, you know, it's funny with the old timers, they knew what they were doing, but they didn't have the testing. And there's been testing now, and there is this sweet spot that's showing up in tests, and it is 110 to 114. So I love when science goes back and proves what they had learned as a craft. Mm -hmm. So we're going in at 110. I'll tell you one other little story. We had some whiskey one time, and uh, we went, we dumped uh, 100 barrels at a time. We pulled the sample, and it was black as this table. So we go back to find out what it was, and somebody had put an, uh, a nail in it, and this was before Uncle Nearest, another previous life. <laughs> somebody had hammered a nail in a barrel, and if iron contacts whiskey that it'll has tannins, black. it'll turn black. So we're trying to figure out what to do with it. And at that time, the TTB, we called them ATF, was still there. And one of the old-timers said they used to put milk in it. And it made sense because of the proteins. Yeah. We put in 20 gallons of milk <laughs> and filtered it. And it came out looking like this. <laughs> so it's fun to see the old you know, the taste wasn't bad, but we wanted to be very cautious, so we ended up doing off like 5% at a time into others. Wait, you were Probably before you were born. <laughs> <laughs> we're <laughs> before you were born. But I think you also wanted to just, the barrel entry proof is really important because you have to give time for, you know, you have to have certain things into account, such as evaporation, oxidization, and having that flux. So you don't want to put something in that's too low proof because then you might end up with something that's not even considered whiskey anymore because if it's under it's under 40% by volume. So that's definitely one of those other things that happens inside of the rack house. Um, there can be more wood contact there, there can be more evaporation, more oxidization, so making sure that you put that barrel in at a certain proof is very important. So you end up with whiskey, you can actually sell afterwards. Yes. <laughs> and I think the other part of that is there's all that with the barrel, and I agree with you, and the other one is, is when you get ready to bottle it, you have to add a smaller amount of water. And so you don't have that. The more water you add after you've dumped it, then more potential problems you can have on stability. Yeah, absolutely. Once you put it in, you can't take it out. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so we go through charcoal mellowing. And, you know, it's one of those things that I've taken for granted because it's all I've ever really known. And uh, uh, one thing that uh, Fawn Weaver, our CEO, has done is she's showing that where sometimes people almost have the perception that Tennessee whiskey is, so, is uh, below is that it is really an extra step. Mm -hmm. It is an extra step. And the one thing it does is 
because of the way it goes in there, you have got different entry dates going on. So what I think a lot of people spend so much time on how we blend here, but if you do a good job on the front end, then your blending at the end is easy because you've got the different distillation dates. You plan where you're going to put it in the warehouse. You plan what barrels you're going to put it in so that when you get ready and it's of age, you've already got, you may have, and according to your tanking system and your piping system, you may have 20 distillation dates in that one barrel. So that, that's, a, that's a big part of it. So our piping system would be that, to where we can get that consistency, but if we wanted to run some special recipe, we can isolate and keep it separate. Just think of it as a Brita filter. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what it's doing. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's not imparting any flavor or anything out, it's just making sure it's just put it through that Brita filter. Your fusels are going to be lower, and if you drink enough and you don't add sugar, you're not going to have a headache. <laughs> But if you don't drink your water and you put a lot of sugar with it, you still may get a headache. Yep. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. Let's please give it up for Sherry. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. The Spirit Guide Society is a Spirit Adventures production in association with Bitten from the Apple Productions. Special thanks to Tone Mesa for their post-production and audio services. The show was produced by Andrew Apple and me, Pedro Shanahan. Executive producer, Andrew Abrahamson. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Spirit Guide SOC. We'll be there to answer any questions you have, share what we're drinking, and more. And if you're still thirsty, you can always find more episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to always drink responsibly. That means don't drink to forget, drink to remember.